We are turning now again to the book of Romans and to the ninth chapter of the book of Romans. And uh, we're focused on the first five verses. Thank you. The first five verses. Uh, Nonetheless, I think that it's important as we turn to this chapter that we read the entire chapter, even though we're focused on verses one through five this evening. So let us briefly pray, and then we will begin uh, reading this chapter together. Almighty God and our Father in heaven, we, um, we humble ourselves into the dust. We come to a chapter that is so high, that is so magnificent, that is so far beyond us, that reveals to us your mind in such a way that we see that the incomprehensible God is the one who has saved us, uh, that we pray that you will help us with reverence and awe to read Holy Scripture always, but this, cha- this chapter tonight in particular with a sense of our unworthiness, not only our finitude, but of our having been utterly undone by the fall and in need of sovereign free grace. Hear our prayer and bless as we begin over these next weeks to expound the ninth chapter of the book of Romans. In the name of Jesus, our Lord, we pray. Amen. The ninth chapter, Paul's epistle to the Romans. This is the word of God. I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. But it is not as though the word of God has failed, for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring, but through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said, about this time next year, I will return and Sarah shall have a son. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of his call. She was told the older will serve the younger, as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, 
and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. He will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honored use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory? Even us, whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. As indeed, he says in Hosea, those who are not my people, I will call my people. And her who was not beloved, I will call beloved. And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they will be called sons of the living God. And Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, Though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved. For the Lord will carry out his sentence upon the earth fully and without delay. And as Isaiah predicted, if the Lord of hosts had not left us offspring, we would have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. What shall we say then that Gentiles... Who do not pursue righteousness have attained it, that is, a righteousness that is by faith, but that Israel, who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness, did not succeed in reaching that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were based on works. They have stumbled over the stumbling stone, as it is written Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. And whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Now, I think that of all the chapters in Holy Scripture where it is simply necessary to have a reverent mind before entering into it, this is the chapter. This is high doctrine. There is a lot here and a lot that sometimes perplexes. But here we need a reverent mind. Paul's great concern is to show that salvation is unconditional. That it is completely, utterly based on his sovereign free grace. That we sinners contribute nothing to our acceptance with God. That our works have no part to play whatsoever. And in so doing, the Apostle Paul not only deals with election... But in this chapter, he deals with the truth of reprobation. Now, this is not often focused on by Paul or by Scripture as a whole, though it is in various places dealt with, but never in such a systematic way as it is perhaps in this chapter. But it is here, and it requires a mind that is ready, before we even begin to expound it, A mind that is ready to bow before what God reveals to us, no no matter how difficult it may seem. God is God. I think you could write that over the chapter, and it would be a good summary. (laughs) 
God is God. And Romans 9 can test our hearts and our wills as to our desire to submit to the authority of His Word and the truth of sacred Scripture. But it is important to note that the chapter begins, it begins with Paul's sorrow for his countrymen at the thought of their alienation from the gospel. And this informs us immediately that a belief in election and also reprobation does not make us cold to the needs of sinners, but rather the opposite. In election and reprobation, again, let God be God. There is going to be so much that will be beyond our comprehension. But in the matter of our concern for sinners, let us remember the pit from which we have been extricated so that we can speak to fellow sinners according to our own, our own knowledge of sovereign grace without any boasting whatsoever of their need also for the Savior. So let's begin with these first five verses. And the first thing that I think is important for us to see here is Paul's anguish, the genuine anguish of heart that is found in Paul. And we read again the first three verses. I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brother's my kinsman according to the flesh. Israel's unbelief is a heavy, anguishing, sorrowful burden to Paul the Apostle. He is filled with love for his brethren according to the flesh, a deep desire that they be saved and that they believe the gospel of Jesus Christ. So much so that the Apostle Paul says that he could desire that he himself were cut off for their sake. Now I find that to be so incredibly compassionate, so deeply merciful, that it is almost beyond comprehension. Hendrickson makes the statement, this cry is all the more striking because it issued from the heart and lips of the very man for whom the impossibility of being separated from Christ meant so much. We've just read that in chapter 8. He is, as it were, saying, I could wish to be separated from Christ for the sake of others if this were possible, but I realize that this is impossible, which in a sense adds to my woe. So the Apostle Paul says that he could wish himself a curse for the sake of his brethren according to the flesh, that if he could suffer in their place, he would do so. This is truly remarkable, so much so that some have doubted that Paul really means what he says he means in this chapter. But it's really clear, I think. We've seen this perhaps in other places. You remember how Moses prayed in Exodus 32 when he, uh, when he said, um, now if you will forgive their sin, uh, but if not, please blot me out of your book that you have written. Moses was willing to be blotted out of the book if indeed others could be written in. Or we could think of how David cried over his son Absalom, O Absalom, my son, my son, O Absalom, my son, would God I had died for thee, O Absalom, my son. What godly parent has not said to unbelieving children, if I could take your place, I would. 
And ultimately, isn't this in a far, far greater way exactly what our Savior did? I was struck with that as I was thinking about this. Paul is simply reflecting the heart of Christ for his own people. He was not only willing, but he was able in some mysterious way to be separated from his father by bearing the father's wrath in our place. Paul's heart is much like the Savior's heart. And I want my heart to be that way too, don't you? I was taken by this comment from Charles Hodge. If we can view unmoved the perishing condition of our fellow men and are unwilling to make sacrifices for their benefit, we are very different from Paul and from him who wept over Jerusalem and died for our good upon Mount Calvary. Obviously, what Paul is about to write concerning election and what Paul is about to write concerning reprobation did not in the least dampen his love for sinners, nor did it squelch his evangelistic zeal. Uh, So much so that the Apostle Paul in the very first chapter, verse 14, you will remember, said, I am under obligation. I like the old authorized version. I'm a debtor. I'm a debtor both to the Greeks and to the barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. The Apostle Paul says in the very opening chapter, I owe it to lost sinners to tell them the gospel of Jesus Christ. So do we see ourselves as debtors? Do we see ourselves as, may I coin a phrase, as being so mercied? Do we see ourselves as having been so graced that we cannot help but love sinners around us and we want them to know God's mercy and God's grace too? Do we know that we owe it to others to tell them about Christ? In concentric circles, those who are closest to us And then, of course, in our obligation to take the gospel to the world. Do you know you can participate in evangelism even if you don't think you're gifted to do so? You can do so by speaking a word when the opportunity arises, by living a godly life. And there is not a person here that cannot become fervent in prayer for the lost of this world and for blessing upon the missionaries that we send. You can participate in evangelism, too. And who knows, as you share the gospel with others, you might find that you grow in your ability to tell others about the gospel. You might find that you grow in your ability to share your faith simply out of the gratitude that you have for the gospel that has been sovereignly revealed to your own heart and to your own soul. Well, the second thing we see then as we move along is... Paul's countrymen's advantages. Paul's countrymen's advantages. In other words, the kinsmen according to the flesh, uh, Israel had all kinds of advantages that the world around did not have, and it makes their rejection of the gospel even deeper and more significant to Paul's heart. So we find that here in verses 4 and 5. Let's read these verses again. They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. So Paul now stresses the extremity of Israel's rebellion against God when he considers their rebellion in light of their advantages. 
The greater the privilege, the greater the sin when Christ is not trusted. The advantages are these. They are Israelites. They are descended from Jacob, the nation favored with God's special revelation, having been redeemed by God from the land of Egypt. Theirs is the adoption, so that God, for example, in Hosea 11.1, calls Israel my son. And theirs is the glory. Did not God lead Israel by cloud and by fire? Did his presence not fill the tabernacle and the temple? And he says, and the covenants. Now it's interesting, I'll just mention this because it's an interesting truth and, uh, of, of difference in manuscripts, uh, that Codex Vaticanus says the covenant in singular. Um, just an interesting thing. Well, God made his covenant with Abraham. That covenant was further elucidated and extended through Moses, through David, through Solomon, leading to the culmination of the new covenant in Christ's blood. Israel's history was covenant history. Uh, their history pointed to, ultimately, to the new covenant in Christ's blood. So that the new covenant was not new in the sense that it had no antecedents, but it was new because Christ came and because he actually fulfilled all that the covenant history of Israel all that it had pointed to. And then he says also, theirs was the giving of the law at Sinai. From God's own hand, they had God's own law. Theirs is the worship in tabernacle and temple, all again pointing to the coming of Christ through the sacrificial system. And the promises, again covenant history. Genesis 17, verse 7, I will be your God and the God of your seed after you. We could spend an entire sermon easily just simply upon that verse. To them belong the patriarchs, he says, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, to whom were given the promises, all of which pointed to Christ. What people have been so privileged as ancient Israel? What people have been so privileged as those to whom belong the giving of the law and the covenant promises? Well, there has been never such a privileged people except for us. And from their race according to the flesh, he says, is the Christ who is God over all, blessed forever. From them came the Christ who has saved both Jew and Gentile, who is God over all. We'll come back to that verse. But for now, let's make a few applications or a couple of applications of the verses that we have just read. It's not difficult to do. The interpretation being made, we now move to application. Again, just a couple. First one is this. Being externally connected to the church does not secure salvation for anybody. Being externally connected to the church does not secure salvation for anyone. Now Paul is very plain and very explicit about this. They are not all Israel who are of Israel. Being a part of the people of God externally did not mean salvation for everyone. There was a remnant, he says, that would be saved. And so it is that as we are God's covenant people today, both Jew and Gentile who believe, and we gather together in our local assembly such as this, 
that to have been baptized does not make you acceptable with God. To have been received to the Lord's table does not make you acceptable to God. Uh, To be here every week, though you should be, does not make you acceptable to God. To listen to the preaching does not make you acceptable to God. To do good works will not make you acceptable to God. You need to know Christ. And so it's extremely important that you understand, especially our young people, that you have incredible privileges being brought up in the midst of the people of God. But you must embrace Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior yourself. You must trust in Him yourself. You must believe in Him yourself. All of these external privileges that God indeed may use to bring you to Himself... Important as they are, and they are important. They are so very important. And I'm saddened to see these great privileges minimized so often. No Christian should minimize the privileges that we have in the church. But those privileges don't save you. Those privileges do not make you acceptable with God. You must trust Him yourself. Have you? Do you? And then a second application for children and youth Again, along the same lines, you have the greatest privileges. What are you doing with those privileges? Let's assume for the moment that you believe, that you trust. What are you doing with those privileges? First of all, the question again, do you trust in Christ? And then do you value those privileges as yours? For through Old Testament history, time after time after time, despite the privileges that had been given to the people of God, that is to say, externally, how many of them rejected the gospel that was proclaimed in its Old Testament form and did not believe in the promise, and in not believing the promise, they did not trust in the Redeemer that would come. And now the Redeemer has come, and the privileges are great indeed in the midst of the covenant people of God, What do you do with those privileges? Every privilege that we have in the church of Jesus Christ should call us out of self and out of darkness into light. Those privileges should call us to Jesus Christ. They call us away from our own works to trust in His work, His achievement, His accomplishment. And so I simply ask the question, is that true of you? I think that's a very important application. Don't you? Someone agrees. (laughs) One of our covenant children agrees. Well, Paul is very sorrowful and saddened, isn't he? All of these privileges, and yet very, very few have believed. And he would, if he could, substitute himself for them if if it could happen that way and they could be saved. But that's not the way it happens. Well... All of our hymns tonight, all the ones that have been chosen, and many that you chose tonight are hymns of praise. Did you notice? They're all hymns of praise. Why? Because Paul doesn't end with his sadness. He ends with praise. And we find that in verse 5. Look at it again. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race according to the flesh is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. Paul cannot mention Christ without praise in his heart. He just can't keep it in. He has to praise. He has to give thanks. And he can praise God because even though his heart is filled with sorrow regarding his countrymen, he knows that God is not done with his countrymen. 
which is in large measure the point of the remainder of chapter 9. Now, unhappily, verse 5 has become a battleground, even though I do not think that it ever should have. It clearly attests the deity of Jesus Christ. Look at it again. What does it say about Christ? Christ who is what? God over all. It is a clear statement, a clear statement of the full deity of Jesus Christ. However, remember that in ancient documents there would have been no punctuation in the original and therefore the reading of the text depends upon where the comma is placed. And there have been those exegetes who argue, for example, that it should be translated. And remember, word order is going to be different in the Greek text than in the English. Uh, that it could be translated, God who is over all is blessed forever. Amen. So, Christ and God, according to these exegetes, are separated in the text. There is Christ and then there is God who is over all, rather than Christ who is God over all. You see the difference? I think I should mention it because it is a very important exegetical question. It's plain, however, I think, that Paul intends for us to read the deity of Christ here, as he says in so many places in his epistles and is taught throughout the Bible and throughout the New Testament. I think that it's very clear. My own argument, uh, the one that is primary with me and that I thought of when I was reading the text or have thought of in the past, is that it speaks of of Christ according to his human nature, according to the flesh. Well, if he speaks of Christ according to his human nature, if that's his argument, this also implies another nature which in union with his human nature constitutes his person. Does that make sense to you? Clear as mud. Clear? If he speaks of Christ according to his human nature, why would you single out according to his human nature unless he also had a divine nature? You see? And it is consistent with the manner of Paul's ascription of attributes of God to Christ in Philippians 2 and Colossians 2 and many other places. One passage that is really fun for me, uh, interesting to me, is in uh, Titus chapter 2 verse 13. You might want to turn there. Uh, Titus 2.13. I'll give you a little Greek lesson. Even though um, for those of you um, who don't want to remember it, you'll remember the point, and that's the issue. Um, Titus 2 verse 13, where Paul says... Waiting for our blessed hope, the appearance of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Well, again, our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, is a clear ascription of the deity of Christ to our Lord, is it not? Couldn't be much more clear than that. Well, <clears throat> what makes this interesting is what is called the Granville Sharp Rule, which is learned by every Greek student. When the copulative chi, okay, and... When and that connects two nouns of the same case, if the article ha, the, the article, the definite article, the, or any one of its cases precedes the first of the said nouns or participles and is not repeated before the second noun or participle, the latter 
always relates to the same person that is expressed or described by the first noun or participle. That is, it denotes a farther description of the same person, and that's what's happening in Titus. Now, isn't that great? It is to me. Well, there are grammatical rules. That's the point. Uh, And the grammatical rule in Titus, the Granville Sharp rule, because it was discovered by Granville Sharp as he inductively studied the scriptures, is one of those rules that helps us to see the clear ascription of the deity of Jesus Christ in Titus 2.13. So forgive me for doing it in my own fun way. Hendrickson mentions that the word-for-word reading of the text would yield this result. Remember I said word order would be different in the Greek New Testament. And Hendrickson would translate the word-for-word in this way. And from whom is Christ according to the flesh, the one being above all God blessed forever. So the one being, the one being, and who is, obviously refer to the same person. Well, other reasons could be given. As a matter of fact, you could write a lengthy dissertation on this verse, demonstrating that it really is what, after all, it appears to be as you read it in your English Bible, an ascription of the deity of Christ to our Savior. And so I would say to you that what you read here in your ESV is precisely the way in which it should be translated. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. It really is clear. Paul here affirms the deity of Christ, the Christ who is God over all. Amen. Therefore, as Paul contemplates the fact that God still has a plan for Israel. As he works out in Romans chapter 9 that he still has a place for his people, his ancient people, he cannot help but praise Christ who is God for this plan that he is about to unpack for us as it has been revealed to the Apostle Paul. And the end result of the greatest blessing that was given to ancient Israel is that the Christ who is God himself has come from them. And it is that Christ who is God who is going to bring about the salvation of the remnant of his people that he determines to save. God is not done with national or shall I say racial Israel. And God is not done with his world. Because you see, something that I think becomes really apparent as we study the ninth chapter of Romans together, try to understand this, is that redemption is not repair work. Okay, I... I, um, Help my wife set up her new Kenmore washer. They make those anymore? Whatever, whatever it is. And um, I don't do it right, and it breaks down, and I repair it. So we tend to have this view, well, 
God set the world in, in motion and uh, sin came in, which it did, and it messed everything up, which it did, and he's just repairing the mess. That's not how we should look at it. Redemption is not repair work. It is God's plan eternally to bring glory to himself. You see the difference? It is not mere repair work. It was from the beginning, incomprehensible though it may be to us, that he would bring glory to himself and the salvation of his people, and I say it with utter reverence, that he also will bring glory to himself in the exercise of his justice upon the wicked in the day of judgment. Because Romans 9 teaches both. And so Paul says, praise Christ who is God over all. Let that determine our view of what God is doing in his world. And God's people said, Amen.